you see the life. You are doing your own life. You are uh, with people. You have a lot of relationships. And somehow, slowly, something happening which is inspiring you. And then you are transforming yourself and sharing with the people. Of course, the way how uh, you have to do this, you are using camera or you are... It doesn't matter what are you using. This it's just a kind of creativity because you want to participate in the life. You want to tell the people uh, how do you see the things. And this is your reaction. And let's okay, say Bella. it's a kind of exhibitionism. Thanks, Bella. Sorry, can I... Kind of, uh, yeah, thanks. <coughs> it's difficult to get him to shut up sometimes. That obviously was um, the voice of Bella Tarr. Um, probably Hungary's greatest living director maybe maybe even um for even very deep cut cinephiles uh, i shudder at using that word even deep cut cinephiles cineasts um perhaps hungary's greatest ever director living or dead um i think certainly the most notorious in some senses he is a filmmaker whose reputation is sometimes swallowed by their form, by their formal practice. Um, I mean here, his, his horror at fast cuts, his horror at brevity. Um, we can quibble with those things because Tar has a mature late style and an early style. But you know, for most people, when they think about Bella Tar, they're like, Bellatar is a maker of black and white, often quite stark, quite bleak films shot in desperate places, rural places, not as a kind of pastoral, but as a kind of anti-pastoral. Um, and they are slow and they're long um, and they are abstruse and difficult. And those things are true up to a point. Um, and the reason I opened up with that clip that interview um, the very beginning is because Tara is talking about uh, his film practice and really talking about any form of creativity as being a way to express your um, your view of the world your worldview, your ontology and I think one of the things that comes across there right, is Tara talking about life um, and humanity and in, in, in the alluding to things like dignity human dignity um we could say that his films on a surface reading don't don't really display that you know they're um austere and often quite cruel um you know that's why that's why i wanted to do this this mini episode uh kind of ironically i want to do a really short episode on bellatar and i want to do it particularly on satan tango um which is his perhaps magnum opus in some ways it's not always the film that people choose as the best Bellatar film you know people might say that Bergmester Harmony's 
is a superior film that's only two and a half hours this is a seven and a half hour film um i saw it quite a long time ago and i think in a really distracted way and in quite a fragmented way um this time around i actually watched it in two two parts and two chunks two legs um of equal equal size duration um the first part i watched uh i came back on saturday night from uh a kind of party and i was at a comp- completely opposite kind of space I was, I was at village underground in london and it was this really leery intense blokey night uh i came back and i was still a bit wired um and restless i think um it must have been about 3 a.m and i watched the first kind of half of it on the sofa and in this kind of state of rapt attention um which is not what you think of bellatar you know or satan tango in particular because it's off-putting this stark bleak monument this wall of film seven and a half hours famously it's composed of 156 shots for those people keeping count um Bellatar himself says about oh, about 150 shots but it's 156 you can make your soy face now if you want um all those cubic stands out there um and it's you know in terms of the fabula in terms of the story itself um it is really important again the form complements and it interacts and engages with the content in a really interesting way in these films because they they're inseparable this couldn't the film couldn't be shorter nor could it be longer it's the exact right amount of time seven and a half hours um i think the the comparison that struck me on uh the first viewing and again on the second was actually Gogol. um so russian 19th century author famed for dead souls Mutvedusha, um which is similarly about you know a bleak kind of rural place that's been a bit forgotten and about a a unusual figure who arrives in that town and kind of upsets its equilibrium kind of blows the dust off the mantelpieces so to speak in dead souls that shishikov um and, and there the kind of allusion to this the sneeze with his name shishikov is kind of intentional there's a lot of like these bodied metaphors about the the how people are described and named in the film but he's a bit of a, a trickster a huckster um he's got this harebrained scheme about um buying um as it were deceased peasants off landowners um because the census hasn't been taken yet so by buying them before the census has been taken you can kind of artificially inflate his value uh his wealth um eventually he's kind of run out of town in the end it all becomes this tumbling metaphor for the state of Russia and where Russia is going, you know, the big, Ru- the, the Slavophile question, um, what is to be done with that shit? Um, kind of proposed, propelled by Chernyshevsky and all those people. But the most interesting thing, obviously, about uh, Dead Souls is not that stuff. It's the kind of his interaction with these landowners and these peasants, these ugly and poor people. And I'm using Bellatar's words there, and he uses it in a very kindly way. Um, you know, Bellatar's first forays into film with these kind of very socialist realist type framed more conventional films they used color um 
this mature style that evolved evolved in tandem with his the emergence of this more almost like collaborative practice that he pursued um working um very closely with here with laszlo krasnokai who's an author who provides has provided all his scripts since damnation in 1988 um also with mehali vig who say uh, who is a musician and is also an actor he plays uh Irmayash in satan tango um also agnes krasansky Kranitsky, sorry, who is his wife and long-term editor, collaborator, um, Gabor Medvigi, who is his cinematographer. So when he talks about his work and his films, he says that this is really all of their film. It's a collaborative, collective work. Um, I'm not going to read too much into that. This isn't this kind of activist filmmaking. It's just how he sees it. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you know, Bellatar is the name you remember. He is the driving engine the vision behind this this mature film filmmaking style since you know since damnation um he's retired now actually uh he's moved on to installation and teaching and he says he's made his films he's made the films he's going to make i respect that respect to you um bella um but yeah the film itself i mean like like dead souls is about a crumbling dropsical forgotten place a collective farm at the transition at the end of communism um there's a scheme afoot um people have sold the cattle in the village i believe that's the general vibe uh, there's money that they've shared around it's there kind of might be a slightly legal transaction going on people try and backstab and try and trick each other out of the money amidst all of this iramayash and his arrives returns to the village he left about a year ago a year and a half ago there are rumors that he spread that he died he arrives with a friend a kind of like you know a kind of collaborator um this kind of beckettian couple um called petrina so these two people and they've got this little lackey this kid in the village he's pretty much the only young person apart from another character estike um and they return to the village and everyone is terrified of them Unspecified, for unspecified reasons he's a bit of a demagogue uh, he's actually a police informer um, he uses a crisis in the village which is the death of Estica a child who poisons herself rat poison poisons tortures her cat in a very famously um, controversial scene right uh, it's really hard to watch uh, as a cat owner <laughs> as a human it's hard to watch she po poisons herself the village sees it as their failure to care and to nurture. Um, Iremayash returns to the village and chastises them at the, at the funeral this wake um, after they spent the night drinking and dancing in a, in a miraculous um, bar scene. And Bella Tar, I was speaking to George Macbeth, who was, you know, appeared on our, uh, our uh, last episode. To talk about Kluger and saying, yeah, he's he's known for these incredible bar scenes, and they all they've all got their own distinct energy to them. But he loves this collective movement of bodies and different actors spiraling on their own rhythm, and that's why his long cuts, you know, some of which are two and a half minutes long, some of which are seven minutes long, invite you to 
look into these scenes and to, in, in an embodied way, feel them um, and to observe. And you go from this initial frustration to this attentiveness and this paying attention is what happens. Um, and really it is about people, um, the demands that people make of other people, their dreams and their hopes um, and how those are frustrated by the great wall the, the indecipherable, ambiguous wall and flood of history. Now, I think when you read about Bella Tarr, um, there's a book by Jacques Grancière called The Time After, and he says, what's the word? He says, uh, Hungarian filmmaker Bella Tarr has followed the collapse of the communist, uh, wor his work follows the collapse of the communist promise. The time after is the time when we are less interested in histories and their successes or failures than we are in a delicate fabric of time from which they are carved. And I think that's true to an extent, but that kind of depersonalizes and disembodies his film from real people who want and need the, the life that Bella Tarr was talking about in that interview at the very top of the episode, right? And he's saying, this is about life, it's about showing the, my worldview. And I think these, these books that are about these, gr these gr bigger things like time and space and history, that's good, and it's a good way of talking about Bellatar. Um, but they, they risk flattening and obliterating the people that are in them, which is really the heart of his film, I think. Um, because these people are... Or, or maybe a better way to put it is uh, history... And, is it's like the long durée you know that that history is is a bigger anonymous process but it's fueled by tiny behaviors and actions and wants and needs and desires and in the film uh these people are as it were making history even as they are um left in the dust by it even as they are they are disarticulated by it and it's you know obviously there's a lot of things in the film that are ambiguous and unresolved estica why why does she kill herself why does she torture the cat? Is it because she's been neglected? Is she mentally ill? Is she um, is she taking revenge against something or somebody? What motivates that? You don't know. There's a, another plot where Ramayash and Petra are trying to buy explosives. You don't know why. You don't know why the the character they call the Doctor, who's I think, yeah, the, the village doctor, whatever, why he won't and can't leave his house. Um, there's a lot of unresolved unresolvedness and, and, and cruelty and indifference but there's also a lot of love and the scenes when the people are in the bar you know the, this togetherness emerges this, this embodied feeling of collectivity kind of emerges and I think um, for Tar he's, he, he kind of likes to roil and roll around in the, the ambiguity and the ambivalence of, of human need and human sociality and togetherness and collectives and I think that's what he does really well so yeah Rancière you're kind of right kind of right but it's, it's bigger than this they are, we're talking about humanity here and dignity and what people might do when they have no dignity and when they have hope you know the people in the village go along with Irmaya she returns this Jesus-like figure this Christ-like figure who returns to the village and takes their money from them on this harebrained scheme that he's set up a new collective farm where they will look out for each other's destiny and future together and this is where you know they go along with it and they realize they've been conned by this silver-tongued um uh he calls himself a partisan you know funnily enough not to them but to petrina he calls himself a partisan but they 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 need someone to tell them where to go they follow him like sheep and this is where it invites the historical analysis you know this is a collective farm at the end of communi communism in Hungary 
um, they people are desperate and confused a new order is entering um, a new order that may again push them to the side and destroy them even as it promises to free them um, and I think those that 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 rhythm to the film and those readings are really important but also yeah it is about people and their wants and their dreams there is a scene when they have spend their first night as it were in this new collective farm place called Almash which is the village over and they walk to it because they don't have cars uh, stranded by history you know they spend the night there and the camera pans over them circles over them and we hear the narrator talk about their dreams some of these dreams are dreams of great comfort and beauty and some of them dreams of panic and uncertainty um and we get this insight into these these fragile, needy people. Um, and there's a moment of real softness. And it's a softness that is displayed in Werkmeister Harmonies at the very beginning of that, uh, where a figure dances in this beautiful way with a group of villagers in a bar, and he gets them to reconstruct the solar system, the planets of the solar system. They move in these orbits around each other. And it's an incredible choreography. Um, and this, again it's deep tenderness even in this kind of alien off-putting world you know he's got a very mucky mucky camera uh, ind indefinite um, I mean part of that might be the way it's shot I, I hear that the, the restoration of Damnation this 4k restoration is really sharp and I've seen little bits of it it's very sharp but at the same time it's not to forget this this is Chiroscuro there's grey pockets of darkness and depth and muddiness in his films even even when restored um, and yeah of course he evacuates the world of color it, it pushes it out of history it you know squeezes it out of history it flattens it in a way but also has this great depth and texture um, and poses questions that have no answer uh, Eshtika's death and her torture of the cat um, being one of those and I think you know, you see elements of the state and of authority and conventional social hierarchies and structures, the police and the police chief and his talk of a local town, but we don't really see the town. At the very end, the doctor, uh, who's had, uh, he was abandoned by the village, actually, left behind. He did not make it to the moving of the village. He returns, wakes up and nobody's there. Um, there's only one madman banging a bell in a church tower. Um, banging a bell in a church tower. Screaming about it. The Turks are coming. Fear of the distant, horrifying other that's going to come and sweep through the country. He goes back to his um, desk and writes in complete darkness almost. There is a structural integrity to this film. Um, it follows a series of, I believe, it might be 12, 12 kind of uh, almost episodes, some of which share similar names. Um, yeah, 12 parts of the title. Um, and like a tango, they go backwards and forwards. Six moves forward, six back. It returns, you know, at the very end, the circle closes. I call Bejaru. The circle closes the final part. Um, and it closes the circle of the film because it's just the teacher at the beginning again, you know. He's one of the very early first characters we see. Might even be the first. 
and actually the first part, I hear Hoji Jonik. The news is they are coming. There's your circle again. There is the man banging the bell. The Turks are coming. Originally, the news is they are coming. You think might refer to Iremaios and Petrina. Again, ambiguities that spool out of each other. This is a tight, contained nucleus, but it's also an exploded universe. Um, I think that's very, very special. I mean, a lot of people talk about this initial opening shot of the cows leaving the cow shed and the camera pans around and watches them. There's no people here. Uh, it's evacuated the people. Uh, th this is, you know, we kind of stitched together that this is maybe what people have sold. Um, sold to who? You know, there's no one there receiving this, this cattle. Um, and But the animals we see just as themselves. And, you know, Tar and people who talk about Tar say, you know, he's a, a hard realist. A spoon is a spoon, a cow is a cow. Yes, but it reaches a transcendence through that. The, cat, the cattle are so much cattle in this moment that they kind of, you go beyond just seeing it as, this is a scene where I, that is establishing a moment. This is a farm. It's beyond that. We see the cattle unto themselves. Um, I think that's one of the really powerful things about his work. Um, it's definitely got me on like a, a tar kick right now because I'm like, uh, Amazon uh, basket, you know, dumped a load of Blu-rays and DVDs in there because at the moment I'm going off re you know, rentals. Um, and I'm kind of looking forward to, to plunging back in. I think, I don't know what changed over the last year where I was like, the, I really could sit down. You know, the only reason I banned, you know, stopped viewing on su uh, Saturday night was because it was, you know, like half six in the morning. I'd run out of beer and I thought I should probably go to bed because it was light. But I could easily have just sat there watching the remaining time. Um, at the beginning of this episode, I was actually playing Maholi Vig's um, part of Maholi Vig's soundtrack, a track called "Rain 2 which is the most prominent music musical theme and signature in the in the in the entire film. Um, you get this kind of some diegetic sound, bells clanging, m feet in muck. Uh, but it's very sparse, and the sparseness resonates, uh, just in the way that the sparseness of the shots resonates, and the sparseness of the things you're seeing resonate. And there's so much to say. This is the thing I'm trying to reconstruct the the film as I talk about it now, um, and it's really, really hard to recall things because so much does happen. Um, the, at one point, you know the there's the anger of the bar owner because nobody pays for their drinks and they stay up all night not paying for drinks and drinking them dry he's kind of left behind as well because his source of business the villagers leave um we there is the report that Iremayash sends to the police chief which they rewrite there is the fact that Iremayash dry he scatters the villagers in, around the towns in villages and places around saying they must wait dormant for the time to come when the commune will happen again it's delayed future this delayed promise the great thing is going to happen the resurrection almost and it's, I, I think it invites a kind of uh, Christian eschatology in a way even though it's a very secular film um, I've been talking for quite a long time already um, for a very long time but we're, we're comfortable with long seven and a half hour things on me 
my other um, I, I made it to the cinema last night uh, props to Castle Cinema in Hamilton uh, to go and see Vinterberg's new film Duke another round it's right um, doesn't have the teeth of the hunt or the, or the, the, the concentrated um, structure of, of hunt it's very much a looser it's a nice nice film I was in a sort of down mood and it's one of those films that kind of spoon feeds you your emotions now you feel happy now you feel sad now you'll laugh now you'll cry um, perfectly serviceable but it's you know it's interesting how, how a long way that Vinterberg has fallen from a tree of Feston and Dogma 95 but you know whatever I, I was happy to shell over a few quid it's in a dark room have the waves of the the film uh, rush over me that might close the circle right now that's gonna close the circle um, so far they are coming who are they well it's Owen and Ralph we're gonna be back soon with the next episode the next episode um, as again we're moving to this this system where we're doing these smaller one-off episodes often a monologue for myself or Ralph sometimes together and these bigger deeper episodes like the Alexander Klug episode we'll often have a guest um, what our aim is to do is to finish our Godard season which is episode four which is late late Godard uh, image book and film socialism uh, which we want to look at uh, Daniel Neofitu friend of the pod and joining us talk about that um, in the meantime I'm going to drop Rain 2 on again which might be playing now because I still need to add it in the mix and I will hear from you soon you will hear from me soon as ever tell us what you want us to talk about on pods, recommendations suggestions, have I missed a really key reading about Satan Tango, do I care, do I give a shit maybe not, maybe not. um but I recommend you watch it and stay frosty, as I said. <laughs> <laughs>